I don't I know that we don't clap much, uh, but my heart is overwhelmed with joy just listening to that and clapping inside. So thank you, uh, choir, for leading us to God's word this morning, uh, which I will point you to this morning. We are going to look at Psalm 23. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you are new here or you're a visitor, my name is Parker Tennant. I'm just a pastor here serving along with other pastors. Uh, And when we stand up to preach, we're really preaching from God's Word. We believe this is actually His words for us. And so what you really need to hear is from Him. You don't need to hear from me or Robert. You really need to hear from Him this morning. And so uh, my goal is to show you Jesus ultimately through this passage because He is what all of us need. Now Psalm 23 is a very famous passage, a passage that's dear to many of us in here. It's been a place that we've brought our very lives, our very souls during hard times. We think about burying a a spouse or a friend or a relative. We've gone to Psalm 23 or we've been through a hard season and we've gone to Psalm 23 to comfort us Every day, some of us go to Psalm 23 just to inspire us to get up and and to do life. But Psalm 23 is not unlike any other passage in the Bible, because what Psalm 23 does is it points us to Jesus. And He is what you need this morning, and He is what I need. So I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in. This is God's Word for us this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. This is indeed your word, Lord God. And it is a portion of your word that is precious to us. And we ask, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would be precious to us this morning. That we would hear your voice as your sheep. And that we would come to you in every way this morning for everything we need. Because you are good. And in you, we shall not want, we shall not lack anything. And so, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, open up my heart and all of our hearts to receive what is true about you through this word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, having convictions about life is very powerful. I'm wondering what convictions you have today as you sit in those pews that dictate your life, that shape your life? What are the firm, hell, firmly held beliefs that you have that shape who you are as an individual? 
What are the beliefs that you have that allow you to say no when everybody else is saying yes? What are the beliefs that you have to say yes when everybody else is saying no? What are your firm convictions this morning? I'm not a history buff, nor do I pretend to be, but I do watch movies. And in 2017, there was a movie that came out by the name of The Darkest Hour, and it told the story of Winston Churchill's speech, or how he handled really the darkest hours of his tenure as a prime minister, where he had to deal with Hitler and the Nazis, thinking about invading Britain. And he had to either decide whether he's going to negotiate with Hitler or he's going to stand and fight. And if you've seen this movie, you remember the very last scene. He stands before the House of Commons and reads this speech, this very powerful speech, when he says, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with a growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the land grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender. And if you remember watching that movie, the the movie ends as he walks out of the House of Commons, and you're struck with the power of what he said, especially as you understand history in that moment. And what made that speech so powerful were not the nuts and bolts of what he said. It's really, as you read the speech, it's, it's not super uh, eloquent, it's not flowery. The nuts and bolts of it are not super impressive, but what's impressive about what he said is that he believed it. He believed every word that he said. He had conviction. And we see that in the word shall. He said shall, shall, shall. We shall go to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall never surrender. This word shall points to his own convictions. Shall means to strongly assert something concerning the future. He believed in the present, a reality of the future. And it caused him to have conviction to give that speech. You know, you've heard it said before. How you say something is as important as what you say. How you communicate to people is as important as what you're trying to communicate. And in that speech, you can see his heart as it's laid out on the screen about what he believed and his convictions about his people, about his army, about his allies. And it really turned the course of the war in a lot of ways. Well, why am I talking about that? Because David in Psalm 23 is passionately telling us something. He is full of confidence and assurance. There's no timidity in his voice. There's no uncertainty in his voice. There's no doubt in his voice. No, he's confidently asserting something. And what is he confidently asserting? He's confidently asserting, look at verse 1, the second half, I shall not want. David is passionately and confidently asserting that he shall not want. That word there for want actually means to lack something. David is saying, I will not lack. And he's not saying it with any kind of timidity or doubt in his voice. He's confidently asserting that for his readers 
and for us this morning. And what is this based upon? How can he say that with conviction? Well, it's the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. David is so grounded in the reality that his God is his shepherd that he can assert with all this shall language, with strong conviction that he shall never lack. At the very end, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word there surely is only, only goodness and mercy. Our goodness and God's steadfast love will follow me all the days of life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We all know the story of David. David didn't get to see the house of the Lord. David didn't build the temple. But right here, he's asserting with confidence and assurity that he will one day dwell in the house of the Lord. How is David able to do that? Because David's life is grounded in this truth that his God is his shepherd. This God, Yahweh, who created all things, who called Abraham or Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him a relationship, that gave him a life, that gave him promises, that gave him a people. A God that took his people out from under slavery and oppression and led them by Moses to the brink of the Red Sea and there crossed it. And they walked through on dry ground and they looked behind him and they saw this great nation destroyed the Egyptians. Yahweh did this. The strong and powerful God is David's shepherd. It's not God to David, or Yahweh to David, is not simply his redeemer, is not simply his, his king, his sovereign. David knew his Lord as his shepherd. An intimate relationship Now, for us, it's hard to understand because we don't live in an agrarian society. We live in a technological, industrial society. And so when we have this picture of shepherds, we don't have a lot of reference points. But David had reference points because David was a shepherd. David knew what it was to live with the sheep, to care for them, to know them personally, to know their weaknesses, to know how to get them to lie down and to feed, to know where to take them. David knew them personally. And so when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's saying, God knows me personally, intimately. He's not distant. He is close. Now, what is this belief grounded in? This fact that David says, the Lord is my shepherd. What's grounded in experiences that David had. So often we take Psalm 23 and we, see of it, we think of it as some fictional lyrics sometimes, or we experience that way. Because the beauty uh, of the poetry and really the heart behind it that we experience, we, we kind of take it out of context. And we cross-stitch it on pillows or we, uh, put it on, we put it in a frame and hang it in our house. But this is not... Uh, this is not uh, fictional poetry to David. This is non-fictional. 
And what I mean by that is there are experiences behind Psalm 23 that caused him to write this. These are real-life experiences that David had. And as you read the story of David, I'm convinced that David wrote Psalm 23 in that dynamic and that relationship with his son Absalom, where Absalom rebelled against him. His son pursued him, tried to kill him. I believe that's the context here of Psalm 23. And so David had real-life experiences that caused him to speak with a conviction that my God is my shepherd. Is that your conviction this morning? What is your conviction about your God? And how does it affect your life? Because David's conviction that his God was his shepherd changed everything about him. Now, what are these experiences that David had that grounded this reality in his heart? We see two experiences here. That God restores his soul and God is with him in darkness. God restores his soul and God is with him in darkness. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. This first part of this poem, this poetry that David writes, that is the middle verse right in the middle. That phrase, the Lord restores, or he restores my soul. The word there to restore means to return, or to refresh, or to revive. And it being the middle phrase of that first kind of pericope tells us that that's what's most important of this first half of this psalm. That God restores, God returns, God revives David's soul. And remember, it's not in past tense. He doesn't say, God restored my soul. He said, God restores my soul. It's a present action with future vision. That God is restoring David's soul constantly as he lives in relationship with his God. And how does he do that? How does he restore his soul on a constant, consistent basis? Well, we see that in verses 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Philip Keller, who wrote a commentary on Psalm 23, uh, a book, actually, uh, it says a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, makes this point. He says, sheep will never lay down unless two things happen. If they feel safe and they feel fed. A shepherd will never get his sheep to lay down unless they are protected and feel safe and if they're fed. David is saying in a poetic way, my God makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters because David knows that God has protected him. That God has been with David all the days of his life. Think about the story of David. Think about Saul, great King Saul, who gets jealous of David. And what does Saul do? He pursues him to kill him. Throws spears at him to pin him against a wall. And there is Jonathan, David's friend. And what does he do? He informs him of what Saul's trying to do and David flees to protect him. 
God is constantly involved in David's life to protect him from enemies. If you move on in the story of David, you think of Absalom, David's son that pursues him to kill him, to take his throne. And Hushai, this, uh, this prophet, goes to Absalom and tells Absalom to do something different in his pursuit of David. And so Absalom listens to Hushai, and then Hushai goes and tells David what Absalom's intentions are, and David flees. God, through other means, through community, is protecting David and has always protected David because God loves David, because God is David's shepherd. But he's also fed David. He's cared for him. We think of numerous times where David has had to rest and God has come to feed him. We think about when he leaves Jerusalem as he hears Absalom coming into the city and he leaves and he goes through the Kintron Valley and he climbs up uh, the Mount of Olives and there to a plateau and who meets him there but Mephibosheth's servant. And what does he do? He feeds David. He gives him food and wine. We think about David setting up to fight Absalom, and he looks across the field, and there is Absalom's army, the people of Israel. And what happens next? But these armies, these servants come to David and his people, and what do they do? They feed them. They care for David and his people. God, through his providence, not only protects David, but he's constantly feeding him. David, this is a real experience for David in real life. And so David is able to assert and say with confidence, my God causes me to lay down in green pastures. And he actually does that. If you read Psalm 3, David talks about how as he looks out over Absalom he, uh, and the army of Absalom, and he's thinking about the battle, he tells us in Psalm 3 that he lays down and he sleeps. And he gets rested before the battle the next day. God cares and restores David's soul. But it's not just protecting and feeding David. He causes him to rest. Look at verse 3, the second half. He leads me in paths, uh, sorry, he leads me beside still waters. This phrase here, he leads me beside still waters, actually means he leads me beside waters that are still. That word still actually means rest. He leads me beside water of rest. The word actually in Hebrew is not an adjective, but it's a noun, which points us to something, that this rest that David's talking about is not necessarily a place, but it's a person, that David has been led to his God and found rest in him. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we learned that the promised land that God promises his people, that David has lived in, that David has moved into, that David lives in, is a land of rest, a land promised of rest. And why is it full of rest? Because God is there. God is present in the promised land where David is. And so David is able to rest and be at peace and God has caused the land to be at rest as we think about 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David's anointed. What does God tell David? Right, this is a land of rest. 
Right? All your enemies are at rest because of what I have done. David is able to assert with confidence, the Lord is my shepherd. Because what? Because God has protected him, God has fed him, and God has given him rest. And why does God do this? Why does God give us rest? Well, it's to follow him faithfully. And that's the point of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in the right way. God does these things. God rests. God gives us rest. God feeds us. God protects us. Why? So we might walk with him faithfully. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us are struggling in life. We lack a lot. We lack sleep. We lack time. We lack resources. And we've turned our, our lives, you know, we slammed it into high gear trying to make up for all this lack. And yet, what God promises is of rest. He gives us one day out of seven to come before Him and to rest and to be with Him in worship. Why? Because He knows you need it. I need it. When we move out in this world and we're exhausted, we have a hard time walking in right paths. Walking before the Lord. And you know that and I know that. We come before our God every week to worship, to know of His protection, to be fed by His Word, to know rest. Why? So we might go out into this world and live rightly for Him. And we struggle to do that. And we don't know this rest, this protection, and this care. God restores David's soul, he revives it on a continual basis as a shepherd restores and cares for the sheep. But secondly, we see the experience that that David has that grounds him in this truth that the Lord is his shepherd. It says that God is with him in the darkness. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, I think the context here is David being pursued by Absalom. David hears that Absalom has come into Jerusalem, and he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes down in the Kindred Valley. There, and probably at nighttime, at a very dark time, dark physically, but also dark emotionally. As we read the story, David starts climbing out of that valley, and he's in tears, and he's in sadness, the thinking that his son is pursuing him to kill him. This is a dark place for David. And what gives him comfort is that God is with him. For you are with me. I will fear no evil. We're, by God's grace, getting through this pandemic and maybe coming to the end, hopefully. But this pandemic has weighed a lot on us, or weighed heavy on us in a lot of ways, and it's done a lot of things. And one thing it's done is it's isolated us. We've been isolated from each other, we've been isolated from ourselves, isolated from community. And a lot of us feel that and experience it. But one of the most acute ways that this virus has isolated us is when we think about our loved ones. Early on in 2020, 
We think about those that were struggling with the virus. And they're in the hospital all by themselves, and nobody could go visit them. Some of you know what that feels like because you were there. Some of you know what that feels like because you had a loved one in the hospital, and you couldn't go visit with them. This virus had isolated us and still does in a lot of ways. What's the most painful thing in our suffering and living this life is not necessarily the pain and the suffering, it's being alone in it. Being isolated in our own pain and suffering is the worst feeling. And David is saying here, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the death is so close to me, I can feel its shadow. I will not fear. Why? Because I'm not alone. Because my God is with me. And he will never leave me. I don't know what pain you're experiencing today. Or what trial you might be walking through. But I want you to hear me say, you are not alone. God is with you. And he promises never to leave you. Though the devil comes in and says, you're alone, you're isolated. God has abandoned you. That is not true. It wasn't true for David and it's not true for us. God is with David in the darkest and the weakest moments. He does not abandon him. And that grounds David's convictions that my God is my shepherd. I know him intimately. He is everything that I need. I shall not want, I shall not lack because my shepherd is with me. Now that's a comforting feeling, no doubt, that our God will never leave us. And that God never led, or left David. But remember, we're talking about conviction here. We're not talking about comfort. David is convicted. He has a strong belief that his God is his shepherd. And so how do you move from comfort to conviction? It's through God's promises. God made David a promise. And we see that in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Right there in the middle, you anoint my head with oil. Those that were anointed in the Old Testament, those were prophet, priests, and kings. And David was anointed the king of Israel. God plucked him out of a family and said, no, you're going to be the king, this little shepherd boy. In 2 Samuel 7, he's anointed as the king of Israel. God makes a promise to him. And what is that promise? That upon your throne will always be a king. It will be a throne forever. From this day until the end, there will always be a king that sits upon your throne, David. And David believed that. God had made a promise to him. And David's faith was grounded in that promise. And those that sit in this sanctuary today, we didn't live a thousand years ago, but those of us that sit in here today know that God's word goes on and that God was faithful to his promises because there was another anointed king that came and he had a name and his name was Jesus. And Jesus came to establish a new kingdom 
and to rule and reign over all things, to make things right. David couldn't do that, but Jesus could and Jesus did. David says here, you prepare, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is that? Well, if you understand treaties, you understand uh, warfare during this time, when, when an army would move in and they would conquer another army and they would surrender, then there would be a covenant that's being made. Very similar to the covenant that God makes with Abraham, where there's animals and there's blood and there's promises and there's curses. But at the very end, there's a meal. They celebrate this agreement. And David is talking about that here. And you can imagine that all the armies he defeated by God's power looking out over them and they're celebrating this treaty they've had. And he looks out at all these enemies and says, God has made a table for me in the presence of my enemies. David says here, my cup overflows. The word there is, my cup is satisfied. You know, Jesus comes as the better king. He comes to sit upon David's throne and rule and reign over all things. And David indeed drank of rich wine and partied well. And yet Jesus came and he too drank. He drank a cup But it didn't satisfy him, it satisfies his father. Because it was a cup of wrath and judgment that Jesus took on as the great king of Israel, as the great king of his people. He bore the pain and the suffering and the judgment of his father as he took on the cup of wrath. And Jesus too sat and celebrated a covenant meal with his enemies as we think about Jesus being up there in the upper room, before he goes to the cross, what is he there? He's celebrating a meal with his disciples. And who is there but Judas, his enemy, who sells his relationship away for 30 shekels of silver. And yet David still, I mean, yet Jesus still gets down on his knees. And he still washes Judas' feet. He still serves him the meal. And also here, we see that unlike David, Jesus too walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus went to the cross. And unlike David, Jesus didn't have anybody. Jesus was alone. He was alone in the garden. And there he is on the cross alone. And why did he do that? He did that so you and I don't ever have to be alone. That we can know our good shepherd. We can know his presence. We can know his care. We can know his promises. And we can live according to them with confidence and assurity that he is our God. And he will cause us ultimately one day to lie down and to be at rest with him for all eternity. And though in this life we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though when death comes in upon us and we feel its shadow, we will not be alone. Though Jesus was alone, we will not. Because he's our shepherd. And we too will celebrate him in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will drink and party and feast with him. And the cups that we drink will never be bitter or never be sour. 
They will be rich with fine wine and good food. Because Jesus drank a cup. And he satisfied the wrath of his Father for you and for me. David has a deep conviction here that his God is his shepherd. Is that your conviction this morning? Are you, do you have a conviction? Does it dictate your life and how you live every day that you have a shepherd that watches over you? He's not distant. He's right there with you. David is not the only one that has a, has a conviction Jesus had a conviction. And he tells us that in John chapter 10. When he says this, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. David is not the only one that has convictions. Jesus has a conviction that he is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. He rescues them. He strengthens them. He leads them. He heals them. He protects them. And what we're about to do, he feeds us until we want no more. He is our good shepherd. Would that be your conviction this morning? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you indeed are our good shepherd. And we thank you for feeding us through your word this morning. We ask that you truly would Feed us now as we come to your table. Open our eyes and our hearts to take in spiritual food for the journey. The journey with you. The journey as sheep with a shepherd to that glorious day when you cause us to lie down and rest and comfort and celebrate with you. For you are the king. You're the king that's a shepherd that loves his people so much that he would give up his very life. Lord Jesus, may that be true even now as we take of this meal. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Our hymn of preparation is the shepherd, the